young lady named Kimberly Duncan was preparing for her wedding day. In fact, it was the day of her wedding, and Kimberly was excited about that day as any young woman would be. Her dad was somewhat uh, nervous as he was about to escort her down the aisle. And so she reassured her father that everything would be okay just before he escorted her down the aisle. The last thing she said to him was, everything is going to be okay, Dad. And Kimberly Duncan died before she ever was escorted down that aisle by her father. She had absolutely no history of medical problems, no indication that there was an issue at all with her health. But she died and was buried in her wedding dress. I want us to consider four questions about this tragic situation which occurred. This is not some made-up story. This is an account. Did she die single or married? Was her intention to marry the same as being married? Thirdly, did she wear her bridegroom's name? And fourthly, did any estate she may have had automatically go to him? The Bible teaches that Christians are married to Christ. That figure is used in Romans 7, where in verse 4, after Paul uses the illustration of a woman who is bound to her husband as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. He comes down to verse 4 of that text, and he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. You're dead to the law of Moses, Paul writes there. You're dead to the law through the body of Christ, and you're married to another. That is, to him who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. And in that relationship, you're to bear fruit to God. Of course, the same writer, the Apostle Paul in the Ephesian epistle, deals with the husband-wife relationship, and in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, he looks back to the Old Testament statement, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And then in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, he says, This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, he draws an analogy between the husband-wife relationship and the relationship that we sustain to the Savior, Jesus Christ. We're married to Christ. We are united with Him. We're joined with Him. The situation that we have described is in principle a problem that has plagued the religious mind in this world for some time. And that is... How far do our good intentions take us in the eyes of God? How far do our good intentions take us in the eyes of God? Tragically, there are a great many people who place a lot of stock, it seems, in good intentions. In fact, some are willing to rest the salvation of their soul on the intention 
alone. But I want us to examine this question from a spiritual standpoint as we review the four questions that we asked just a moment ago in regard to this young lady who tragically died as she was about to go down the aisle to be married. Did Kimberly Duncan die single or married? Consider that the groom was there. The wedding party was there. The one to perform the ceremony was there. They were waiting. The license had been obtained. It was in hand, but it would be invalid after a certain period because intention is not enough. There's not a single one of us who would contend that Kimberly Duncan died as a married woman. Nobody would. She died as a single woman because she never met the requirements of the law. She never met the requirements. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Paul writes to the Corinthians who were Christians now, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, he writes, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I have betrothed you, he writes, to one husband. That's the New King James rendering. The King James says, I have espoused you to one husband. This is the only time anywhere in the New Testament where this word is used. The word translated in the New King James as betrothed, and the King James as espoused. What does it mean? Originally, it was a carpenter's word that meant to join or to fasten or fit together. But it's defined, obviously, as uniting in marriage by various lexicographers. The Corinthians had been united. That's what Paul is saying to them. That's the meaning of the word in this context, obviously. They had been united to God. They had an obligation to God because they had obeyed God's spiritual laws in becoming Christians. They had done what was required. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Corinthians understood that. The Corinthians obeyed that. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Had the Corinthians met those requirements? Indeed, they had. If you look at the background of the establishment of the church at Corinth, and you look at passages like Acts 18... And verse 8, what do we find? Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, this is at Corinth, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Paul says, remember in 2 Corinthians 11, I have betrothed you, I have united you. I have united you. I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I have betrothed you. I have united you. I have joined you to one husband. That is, to Christ. How did that joining occur? Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. What about when we come to the book of 1 Corinthians? Paul's first epistle to them in chapter 12 at verse 13. Paul reminds them, for by one spirit, that is by the teaching of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free and have all been made to drink 
into one spirit. Later in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 12 at verse 27, he writes to the Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. You are the body of Christ. You are the church of Christ at Corinth. That's what you are. The body is the church, Colossians 1.18. Paul writes, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's the head of the body of the church. You are that body, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12.27. You are that body, individually members thereof. Acts 2.47, upon the initial obedience of those who heard the gospel on Pentecost and who met the legal requirements, they were added to the church. To the Galatians, Paul made it clear, for you are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The Corinthians had done these things, and in doing all of these things, they were united with Christ. They heard the gospel. They believed what they heard. They repented based upon what they had heard. They turned their backs upon sin and turned to God through Jesus Christ. They confessed Jesus to be the Christ, and they were buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And then they were united with Christ in doing all of this. If they had not done it, they would have been spiritually single. And if they had died, they would have died out of Christ. Kimberly Duncan died outside of marriage because intention alone does not constitute the act itself. She never met the legal requirements, tragically. Second question, was Kimberly Duncan's intention to marry? In just such a short time, I mean just the difference was the time it took basically to walk down that aisle. Was her intention to marry in just a short time the same as being married? Well again, who would answer yes? Because if you answer yes, then she was already married and the ceremony was unnecessary. There would have been no need for the ceremony. If she was already married before she ever started down the aisle, then there was no need for the ceremony. Is our intention to marry Christ in obedience to His will, is that enough? The rich young ruler came to Jesus at Luke's account in Luke 18, 22. Jesus told him, you still lack one thing. That's after the rich young ruler had come and said, What must I do? Good teacher, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And at that time, of course, the law of Moses was still in effect, and so Jesus told him to keep the law. He said, I've kept this from my youth up. And then he asked a question that indicated how good his intentions were when he said, What do I still lack? Tell me what I still lack. And Jesus said, Go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And that's when the young man went away sorrowfully because he had great wealth and though his intentions had been good when he came to Jesus, he went away 
as one who was not a follower of Christ. What about Cornelius in Acts 10? We read about this man who, who was a devout man, who prayed to God always, gave much alms to the people, prayed to God always. He was a devout man, had favor with all the Jews. Obviously, he was a man whose intentions to serve the Lord were certainly good and certainly honorable. But the time had come when he had to hear and obey the gospel of Christ. And obviously, we know that he was eager to do anything that he was told to do. But what he was told to do was to send to Joppa for one Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you will be saved, you and all your house, who will tell you words which you and all your household will be saved by hearing. That's Acts eleven fourteen. And his good intentions alone would not have saved him had he not heard and obeyed those words. We stay in the book of Acts and we come to Felix, the governor before whom Paul stood on one occasion to give his defense to Felix. And verse 25 of Acts 24 says this, Now as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. I don't know and cannot know Felix's heart on that occasion. But there may have been good intentions. Now I can read the next verse. And that tells me that meanwhile he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. He wanted some money. I know that. But I also know that he was afraid when he heard Paul's preaching. And he may have very well had good intentions at that moment in time. But as far as we know, he never acted upon them. And then I can go over to Acts chapter 26. As Paul stands before King Agrippa. And as he stands before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26... And says to him in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I dare say that's where the, the very familiar hymn we so often sing as an invitation song, Almost Persuaded, had its origin most likely. Almost persuaded. Almost, but lost. Good intentions. Luke 6, 46, Jesus is recorded there as saying, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It is never enough to say and to not do. And we understand that. In the secular realm, we understand that. In banking... If I intend to deposit money in the bank, is that the same as having money in the bank? Well, of course not. If I promise to do something but never make good on that promise, is that the same as doing it? Well, of course not. And any number of examples could be cited in the secular realm to clearly demonstrate that saying and not doing is not sufficient. 
intention alone is not sufficient. And intentions did not join Kimberly Duncan to her bridegroom. And intentions do not join us to Christ. And also intentions do not rejoin us to Christ if we have separated ourselves from him through spiritual adultery. If we're married to Christ when we become Christians, and we are, that's the beautiful figure that is often used in Scripture, then when we, when we leave him in apostasy, when we leave him and become unfaithful after being initially joined to him through obedience to the gospel, then we become spiritual adulterers. When we allow the world to overcome us after having overcome the world initially, then we are spiritual adulterers. And James makes that abundantly clear, doesn't he? In James 4 and verse 4, where he writes, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Spiritual adultery occurs tragically. And it's a tragedy beyond description because Peter reminds us, remember, that it's better never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn our backs upon the holy commandment once delivered. It is as the dog turning to his own vomit again and the sow who was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Better never to have known if one can imagine such a thing. And yet how many people have you ever encountered who have been unfaithful to the Lord, who have become unfaithful to the Lord, who have said, I know I need to come home. I know I need to straighten up. I know I need to change. And and one day I'm going to do that. Someday I'm going to do that. And for many, no doubt, that day never came. And good intentions do not suffice. In that situation, any more than good intentions joined Kimberly Duncan to her bridegroom. Well, what about the name? Did Kimberly Duncan, that's our third question we posed, did Kimberly Duncan wear her bridegroom's name? What do you think they put on that young woman's marker to mark her grave? I can assure you though I haven't seen it, but I can assure you they put Kimberly Duncan on her marker because that was her name. She was moments away from taking the name of her bridegroom, but she died as Kimberly Duncan, and we know that. They were never joined. The legal requirements were not met. But again, if intentions were enough, she already wore his name before she ever started down the aisle. No. No. We know that's not the case. Can you imagine? If intentions are enough in that regard, then there are those probably among us right here who've been married before, who haven't been married before, if you know what I mean. (laughs) You ever dated anybody that you thought you were going to marry and maybe intended to marry, but you never married and you wound up marrying somebody else, well, if intentions alone were enough, you were married to that person you intended to marry. No, we know that. It's not the case, don't we? Intentions alone don't constitute marriage. The key is legal requirements and meeting those requirements. Now, let me ask you this. Can we wear Christ's name and not meet the requirements? How can we do that? 
Only those who are married to Christ can wear his name. And yet there are many today, myriads of people today, who tragically profess to wear his name without the ceremony. They've never undergone the ceremony and they profess to wear his name. Who are they? Anyone who's obeyed the doctrines of men rather than the doctrines of God professes to wear his name and yet they do not. Remember what Jesus declared in the great Sermon on the Mount along these lines? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, that is at the judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonderful works or wonders in your name? And then what? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who what? Practice lawlessness. Practice lawlessness. Promise, but not practice? No. Not sufficient. Wearing the name without obeying the doctrine of Christ, it is an impossibility. And yet many profess to wear his name, but they have never undergone the ceremony, if you will, the process of obeying the gospel of Christ. They have imbibed the teachings of men, of false prophets, of whom Jesus says, Beware, in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And now we're back to verse 21 when he says, Not everyone who what? Says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we know whether or not we're in Christ? How do we know that we can legitimately wear his name? By being obedient to the ceremony, if you will, that he has prescribed in order to be married to him. And that is belief that Jesus is the Christ, repentance of sin, confession of his sweet name, and burial and baptism for the remission of sins, as we've already seen the Corinthians had done to be married to him. Espoused, betrothed. Now the final question. Will Kimberly Duncan's estate automatically go to her bridegroom? Well, of course not. He will not inherit her estate automatically without marriage. The ceremony was never completed. Think about what Paul wrote in Romans 8 in this regard spiritually. Verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. How does that process occur? The Spirit tells us what to do to become children of God. Our spirit responds to 
the Holy Spirit in obeying what the Spirit tells us in His Word to do. And those two spirits agree based upon what this book tells us to do. And then we know. We don't speculate. We don't rely on feeling. We know then that we're children of God. And if we are children of God, then and only then, when we've been united with Christ in marriage spiritually, are we heirs, joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In other words, the legal requirements have to be met. Being an heir of God is limited to being a child of God. You cannot be an heir of God without being a child of God. That's what Romans 8, 16, and 17 makes abundantly clear. And here's another text. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about, or 1 Peter chapter 1, rather, 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Keep reading. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. To an inheritance, what? Incorrupted and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who? You who are what? Kept by the power of God, arbitrarily and by His power alone, without anything on your part. No, who are kept by the power of God through what? Through faith. That's your part, my part. Through faith. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's that obedient faith again. In other words, the inheritance belongs to the child of God. And if the inheritance is there for every individual and is not limited to God's children and those who've obeyed the gospel of Christ, then that inheritance has to be for every person who's ever lived or ever shall live. It would be for the just and for the unjust. And we know... That is not the case if we believe the Word of God. And so in conclusion, we point out that marriage to Christ is absolutely essential. It's essential to avoid dying spiritually single. It's essential to wear Christ's name. It is essential in order to receive the inheritance. And intentions are never enough, and we'll never be able to argue intentions at the judgment. We'll never be able to say, but I intended to obey the gospel, or I intended to come home to my first love. I just ran out of time. No. We must marry according to God's spiritual laws. And again, those laws are these. Believe or die in your sins, John eight twenty four. Jesus said. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you before the Father, Matthew 10, 32. And be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Maybe someone here today is living in spiritual adultery. 
who has done those things at one time to meet the legal requirements, but knows today that you have gone back into the world, have succumbed to the things of the world, are not living in full compliance with the will of God, that you have been guilty of spiritual adultery and that you need to come home to God. Do you want to die in that condition as a spiritual adulterer? Of course not, surely not. And if that's your need, we plead with you to come back to your first love in repentance and confession of sin that's public in nature that we might pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you and who will forgive. The all-important question is, now, what, what will you do with Jesus? That's what Pilate asked long ago, didn't he? In Matthew 27, 22, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's still the question today. What will I do with Jesus? But one day that question is going to be completely reversed and it will become, at the judgment, what will Jesus do with me? What will Jesus do with me? I may have mentioned before the fable, the fable of the three apprentice demons who were discussing with Satan the best way to come back to uh, men and to work to destroy their souls. And one of the apprentice demons said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back and I'll tell people there is no heaven. And Satan said, no, no, people really want to believe in heaven and you'll not be very successful with that tact. Second demon said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back and tell them there is a heaven, but there is no hell. And Satan said, well, you'll, you'll be more successful with that, but you still will not destroy as many souls as I'd like for you to. Third apprentice demon said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back and I'll tell them there is a heaven. I'll tell them there is a hell, but I'll tell them there is no hurry. And Satan said, you go, and you will be most successful with that approach. For too many people today, they just think there is no hurry. But there is, because we do not know that we'll have another day. If you need to respond, will you do so now as we stand and as we sing?
Jesus, I come to Sing his hymn of Paramount the Lord's Supper. As we 
humbly bow before thy throne of grace and mercy. We thank you for this opportunity as Christians to come together and uh, partake of this bread, which to us represents the body that was uh, nailed to the cross. We pray that we all do so in a manner well-pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We continue our thanks unto thee, Heavenly Father, for this fruit of the vine. May we also partake of it in a manner pleasing unto thee, in Jesus' name. Amen.
That concludes the Lord's Supper, but this is also a convenient time for us to give as we've been commanded. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for all the many blessings that are ours to enjoy, for the food we eat, for the liquids we drink, for the very air that we breathe, knowing that all those gifts come from you. Lord, help us as Christians to give in a manner that we've prospered and that we give cheerfully so that the work of the kingdom may continue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn to 141. Receive the first verse, will be dismissed. If you would please stand. <clears throat> more about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Certainly appreciate your presence here this morning. If you're visiting with us, I hope you'll give us a moment to meet you before you leave. And hope you'll be back this evening at 6 p.m. for our evening worship service. Thank you, Jim, for an outstanding lesson. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we humbly come before thy throne, thankful for this beautiful day you've given us, the opportunity we've had to gather around this table to remember the Savior that died for us. We thank you for your love toward us in sending your Son. And Father, as we depart this morning, we pray that you will continue to be with each of us, strengthen us, and watch over us and keep us safe, especially those that have been mentioned of our number who are recovering from surgeries and expecting surgeries, Father. We pray that you will be with the doctors and the nurses that are looking out for their welfare. We pray, Father, that you will continue to strengthen us through thy word as we have studied it this morning. May we hold it in our hearts and remember it and apply it to our lives that we may be better able to serve thee 
and in eternity reach that home to be with you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.